Hi there. My name is Misty Denman, and I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And as always, I'm glad to get to do this together with you today. I am glad that we have studied the Gospel of John. It's felt like a very significant um, study during a very significant time in our history. Now that you've read John 17 and 18, probably on your own, you've talked about it with your small group a little bit, you'll understand when I tell you that for me, this has been a most remarkable and meaningful portion of the scriptures to study. And one thing I figured out as I've um, taught over the years is really any portion of scripture that you look into over and over and with great depth takes on a lot more meaning than it ever had for me before, but I think this one may stand out for me um, for sure over the long run. Getting to hear Jesus himself pray for us is amazing. Watching as Judas betrays Jesus, as Jesus is arrested, as Peter denies him stories that we know even if we don't know our Bibles well, but getting to look beneath the surface of those uh, is a pretty remarkable thing to get to happen. And as we take a closer look at all of this and unravel what it means, what I really hope is that we can see Jesus' heart behind what he says and what he does. And not just learn the facts about it, but see that it is his perfect love that propels him every step of the way toward the cross uh, during his last hours. So, you know, we're about 13 months into this pandemic. And as soon as we hit mid-March, you know, a month or so ago, I, I keep thinking about what was happening exactly this time a year ago. This is when we went to the grocery store and the shelves were empty. This is when we realized my kids were gonna be out of school for longer than two weeks. Um, and I've just done a lot of reflection about what the last year has looked at. And there's been a lot of things that have been so hard, so much loss, so much confusion, um, so much isolation. But I've also sort of taken account of the good things as well. And one of the good things for me that has come out of this last year is that I believe I have prayed with friends, mostly over the phone or by text, more in the last year than I ever have all in all of my time put together. And sometimes it's awkward to pray by text or on the phone, but I realized that and how much more frequently that's happened in the last year, how much closer I am to um, some of the women I've gotten to pray with and how much I have felt loved as they've prayed for me and been able to communicate love. So for me, that's one good thing that's come out of this whole isolation business. And as we listen to Jesus pray today on the pages of scripture, watch how he reacts to his arrest and questioning. I think we will all be able to say, Jesus loves me, this I know. So open your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. And while you're turning there, I wanna set the scene for us. It's Thursday night, the night um, of the Last Supper. The Last Supper has already happened with the disciples. Jesus has washed their feet. He has given them all the instruction and encouragement he will give them to prepare them for when he is gone. Now Jesus shifts from speaking to his disciples to looking up and speaking to his father. But I think it's the most astonishing gift that he prays aloud and in the presence of his disciples, 
John heard him, John recorded it, and then we get to hear or read these words today. You know, some theologians say that this, chapter 17 of John, is actually the Lord's Prayer. And what we know is the Lord's Prayer might better be called the Disciples' Prayer. I thought that was really interesting. It's also often known as the High Priestly Prayer. And that is because a Jewish high priest was a mediator between God and his people. A Jewish high priest offered sacrifices um, on behalf of the people for their sins. A Jewish high priest interceded for the people to their God on their behalf. In this prayer and on the cross, Jesus is our perfect high priest. So sometimes you'll see this in a Bible uh, with the heading, the high priestly prayer. Now Jesus begins this prayer by praying, for himself in verses one through five, if you wanna follow along while I read those out loud. When Jesus had spoken these words, and that is everything from chapter uh, 13 to 16, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom, they have, whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Jesus here is talking as if the cross has already happened. It obviously hasn't happened, but it's such a foregone conclusion in his mind that he is speaking as if it has. He goes on to say in verse five, and now Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So it is time, it is his hour, is just a few uh, literal hours from the cross and acknowledging this, Jesus fully submits to his father's plan, to his arrest, to his uh, crucifixion, but the suffering that he is on the cusp of is not really what's on his mind here. Glory is on his mind. And you can see that as he repeats that word over and over in these verses. But what does Jesus mean when he says glory or for the, asks for the Father to glorify him? It's the only thing he asks for himself in this entire prayer. It's really a very outwardly rather than inwardly focused um, ask. Glory here means to be clothed in splendor. But Jesus knows the way to splendor is the cross. His personal suffering is about to be unimaginable, but he desires with all of his heart what the cross will accomplish. Splendor will be him paying the penalty for our sins and splendor will be our reconciliation between a holy God and sinful humanity. Accomplishing these tasks is his glory and his splendor. And I think embedded in this request for the Father to glorify him, and I think the Father would have understood this perfectly, is a request for the strength and endurance to, um, to go through what is to come. Jesus had set his heart on perfect submission and obedience, and he is voicing the truth that he would give glory to the Father through his perfect obedience. You know, back in chapter five, uh, Jesus explained to his disciples that his agenda on the earth 
was his father's agenda. He was about his father's work. For Jesus, submission and obedience were purposeful choices and they were born out of this ironclad love for his father and for us and they required absolute strength. So when Jesus then asks for him to have the glory he had before the world began, he's really looking a bit ahead here. After he dies and is resurrected and then spends 40 days back on earth again, after that, he will ascend back into heaven. And only then does he get to return to that glory in heaven with his father that he had before he came to earth. So Jesus requests that he return to his father's side, his father's side after his work is complete. And once again, he is going to be clothed with that full majesty that is rightfully his. Once again, he will be in the physical presence of his father. And I think that's glory that we can only just barely wrap our earthbound and finite human minds around. But one day we are going to be with him in that glory and we are going to get to see it. And I can hardly wait. So verse three here, I think is sort of like a little aside. And I think it was spoken out loud solely for the benefit of the disciples and by extension us. Jesus voices aloud what he means when he says eternal life. And he says, eternal life is to know the Father and to know the Son. That relationship begins, of course, when we first trust him and continues through eternity. It doesn't begin at death. It begins at the point of our salvation. Now, John has really woven this truth all the way through his gospel. If you look back, there are a number of times where you can see that um, idea spoken, but you can definitely look back at John chapter 15 and get a really good grasp of what Jesus means when he says, to what it means to know him and to abide with him while we're on this side of heaven. But what I love so much about this is we get to hear Jesus himself say that he wants that relationship with, with, with us now. He doesn't want us to wait until we get to heaven to be with him and to get to really know him well and to start searching out that glory and that splendor. He wants us to pursue him now Jesus loves me and he loves you. This I know because he prayed on the night before he died, not only for our salvation, but for our friendship as well. Look with me at the most remarkable words on your verse sheet, Zephaniah 317. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. All of those things point to a relationship. Okay, with that truth in mind, listen to something that J.I. Packer, a great man of God, wrote. What are we made for? To know God. What aim should we, should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. What then does the activity of knowing God involve? Knowing God involves first, listening to God's word and receiving it as the Holy Spirit interprets it. Second, noting God's nature and character as his word and his works reveal it. 
Third, accepting his invitations and doing what he commands. Fourth, recognizing and rejoicing in the love that he has shown us by drawing us into this divine fellowship. That is the great New Testament definition of eternal life. And so I would say, let us be women who know God like that. And let us be women who pursue our relationship with Jesus every single day. All right, let us look now at how Jesus prays for his disciples beginning in verse six. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of this world. And when he says I've manifested your name, what he's saying there is I have shown the world who you are. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and they have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And I wanna say right here that Jesus doesn't leave out the world. Jesus died for the world. He's just not praying for the world right here. He's praying for his disciples who are his. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I have kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, Jesus has... Uh, much love and affection here for his men as he prays for them. This portion of scripture is specifically meant for his disciples, but the overarching truths that are here are very much for us as well. So I think it's helpful when we look at these verses to know that they are prayed specifically for the disciples, but they have much in them for us as well. And Jesus praises his disciples for their belief and their faithfulness. They've not been perfect, they know that, he knows that, but he gives them, um, but he gives them, I, I think a great shout out right here in the scriptures. Here's what the disciples did right. They believed this. Look at your verse sheet at John 3, 16 and 17. They believed that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And that verse gets the prize, I think, for the most quoted. Um, most of us have had that, I think, on our verse sheet sometime. And John, it's been remarkable to me how such a familiar verse has, uh, I've found very deep meaning in it that I didn't know before as we've studied here. That's what they get praise for. They believed that scripture right there. Now, my guess is that after Jesus dies, all of these men are going to carry some pretty significant regrets for 
the things they didn't get when they were with him in those three years on earth, for the ways that uh, they let him down, were slow to understand, certainly probably for the ways that uh, they left him in his darkest hour um, at the cross. Jesus knew all of their shortcomings that had come before and would come after, but the simple truth is there was just no end to his grace and his love for those that are his. And you see that in his praise for them here. It was true for his disciples and it's true for us too. I hope we will not harbor regrets for our own shortcomings. When we fail God, we can repent, we can confess that sin, we can turn from it, we can ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen us so that we go the Lord's way and not our own. And we can remember that Jesus calls us his, just like he called the disciples his. They were not perfect and we aren't either, but he gives us a path toward righteousness. You can also see how Jesus loves these men by what he asks the Father on their behalf. He has been guarding them like a good shepherd with his physical um, presence while he's been with them. He's about to be gone from them physically. So he asks the Father to guard them now. He prays that the Father will protect the disciples from evil. Now, these are the men that will start the New Testament church. They will begin a, a movement that started um, in the book of Acts and, and, and is still continuing today. I would think that Satan would want to take these men down as much as anybody um, ever in history, but they are not taken down. The rest of the New Testament tells the story of their faithfulness. And every one of us is a spiritual link in a chain of believers that began with the disciples and, and will, re will last all the way until Jesus returns and come back for us. And the only way that was ever going to happen was for them to stay behind, after Jesus ascends back into heaven and do the work he gave them to do. And they do it under the Lord's protection. Many years later, even John himself recognizes how the father answered Jesus' prayer for his disciples on his behalf. Look with me at what John wrote near the end of his life in 1 John 4.4. He says, for he who is in you, for he who is in us, is greater than he who is in the world. John has recognized, looking back over his life, how um, God provided spiritual protection and physical protection um, throughout his life. I think it shows great love on Jesus' behalf. Um, it's a truth that we can stand on as well. While Jesus lived and taught with the disciples, they were learning from him, they were seeing his miracles, they were being nurtured, they were being loved and cared for and befriended by him every day. Now that he won't be with them in the same way, Jesus asked the Father that these men would continue to grow in truth and joy and not stay the way they were. The ESV uses the word sanctify. Um, in other words, the disciples and all believers are to be set apart for God's special use. They're to be distinct. We are to be distinct in our values and our beliefs and our goals and our thoughts and our behavior and our words. These disciples would not have been able to set the world on fire for the gospel if they had ascended into heaven with Jesus with him. These disciples would not have been able to stay behind and do the work that he gave them to do if they had gone back 
to being who they were before they met Jesus in the first place. They had to continue to learn, to be rooted in him, to grow, to be sanctified in the truth, to let the Holy Spirit who is coming soon do his work in them. If they hadn't done those things, I'm not sure that we would be standing here today. So I am grateful that uh, Jesus prayed for them to grow in truth and joy. And I'm grateful that they obeyed that call. So sanctification always sounds like an odd word in my ears because I never use that word outside of this kind of setting or outside of discussing the Bible. It's just not an everyday kind of word. But I think Jesus put some plain truth on it here. He says, sanctify them in the truth. My word is truth. And I, I love the simplicity in, in, of that saying there because it was a great reminder that the word doesn't help us understand truth, uh, point us toward truth, suggest truth. He says his word is truth. He is the word. He is the embodiment of truth. His word is the embodiment of truth. And this is the tool for our um, spiritual growth and sanctification. Here's what I've personally been encouraged by as I've studied as well, is that sanctification is not theoretical. It's not just a churchy word. It's really about the everyday nitty gritty stuff of life. And it's also not particularly complex because of that, I think. It's not always easy to do, but I do think it's fairly easy to understand. So here's what our sanctification might look like this week. And honestly, we can fill in the blank in our own thousand different ways. But sanctification this week, our growth in um, spiritual maturity and truth might look like absolutely refusing to complain or gossip with a coworker or another mom on a baseball bleacher. It might look like um, giving an encouraging word or showing up for a friend um, who needs you, even when you're tired and lonely and don't even know exactly what to say. It might look like writing down a Bible verse on a note on your phone or on a note card. And when you start getting anxious and have sort of out of control thoughts, reading that one verse over and over again until the Lord can kind of help you bring your thoughts back under his um, leading. You know, it might look like when you're out um, at the back in a backyard or at a restaurant with a group of friends foregoing a glass of wine because there's another gal in that group who's struggling a little bit with drinking and having one other woman at that table who'll drink water or iced tea or LaCroix with her will give her the um, strength and the, that she needs to listen to that nudge from the Holy Spirit. It's often giving up your own rights it really does boil down to um, loving your neighbor as yourself. It boils down to greater love has no one than this than he who lays down his life for his friends. Jesus wants us to believe and to grow in his truth and make those thousand little choices every day by the power of the Holy Spirit when he nudges us. So how do we pursue that today? We commit, I think, to him to growing in spiritual maturity day by day, to choosing his way over our own, over and over again, and it adds up. 
You know, the last portion of Jesus' prayer begins in verse 20. And here he prays specifically for us, which is the most remarkable thing. So uh, follow along with me as I read verses 20 through 26. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that's every one of us. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the word, the world may have, may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as even so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We're going to talk here all about unity in a second. It's clearly a um, big thought on Jesus' mind. But before that, will you look back with me at verse 24 first? Jesus says, I desire that they who you have given me will be with me to see my glory. Jesus yearns to be with his followers He wants us to know him and to be with him. His beauty, his power, his perfection, his sovereignty, his strength, his majesty, his magnificence. Those of us who follow him really do get to see a portion, a glimpse of that glory, um, this side of heaven and all the aspects of his character through his word, through his creation, through the works we see that he does in our lives and in other lives. Um, but one day we are going to get to see his full glory in heaven. We are going to get to lay eyes on all of it. Why? Because he wants us there with him and he made a way for us to do that. And remembering that and that kind of love that Jesus has for us, that he wants to be with me. It's not just that I want to be with him. Remembering that is making my hard days a lot easier to bear. It's why he's about to endure the cross so that He can be with us and we can be with him. Jesus loves me and Jesus loves you. This I know. In the meantime, it's impossible to miss that desire of Jesus' heart for his people on this side of heaven. He desires our unity. God's people should plainly be characterized by unity. He talks about it extensively in this part of the prayer. And it's almost as if he knew what America in 2021 would be like and had a word to say about it. The conclusion that I've come to as I've studied this chapter is that unity mattered deeply to Jesus, um, so much so that he, he, he talks about it extensively here. And if it mattered that much to him, it better matter that much to us also. So I think we should step back and figure out what unity actually means here. Our pattern of unity comes directly from the relationship between the Father and the Son. Perfect love, perfect fellowship, mutual respect. And that 
unity and perfect relationship has also been a theme woven through the book of John. We can uh, see it many times um, throughout this gospel, but just look with me at one of the times that Jesus explains what he means by that in John chapter 14. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So that's an explanation there of that um, inseparable bond between the Father and the Son. So how does that picture of unity play itself out in our lives? I think it starts with love. Every believer has a common goal of loving the Lord and loving one another. Every believer has the word in common. Every believer has been saved by grace through faith. And that's just the tip of it. You could make a much longer list of the uh, things that, uh, that all believers, no matter where you are in the world and no matter where you are, were in time from the very first um, New Testament believers um, all the way through today. You know, about a dozen or so years ago, I was in Women in the Word group and there was a woman at our table who at first glance was very different from the rest of us. Uh, different background, culture, family, um, to some extent, some beliefs, that kind of thing. And it was pretty obvious to all of us that that was true. And she commented on it once in the middle of a, you know, a discussion of our questions and she wondered aloud, do y'all really understand where I'm coming from here? And I'm not sure I understand where you're coming from. And I will never, ever forget, our small group leader immediately said, we have so much more in common around this table than we ever will have um, a difference of. And she said, that is because we are all sisters in Christ. What, what matters, we have in common. And I'll never forget how our small group changed that day. Because we all, I think, immediately started looking for the ways in which we were united not united with um, this other gal rather than the things that separated us. And once I started doing that, it honestly changed my life. I have, um, I have thought about that comment and related to other believers like that in a completely different way uh, ever since and look for the things that I have in common with other believers um, and knowing that it's the things that we have in common that really matter before I look at any of the differences. And that has transformed. I, I wonder if anybody else in that group's remember it, group remembers it too. Maybe it was just a word that the Lord knew I needed, needed to hear. It has broken down um, what would have been some barriers between me and other people time and time again. And it's been a great thing. Pursuing biblical unity with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ is a core component of our spiritual maturity um, that we were also talking about just a few minutes ago. And I think Jesus gave voice to verse 21 here, especially for our benefit. He says, I want my people to be one so that the unbelieving world will believe. You know, unity isn't now. I know we know that. It has never been particularly easy. I think that's precisely why the world does take notice when believers love one another and are unified together. Listen to what Warren Wearsby says about unity. He says, the lost world cannot see God, but they can see Christians 
and what they see is what they will believe about God. If they see love and unity, they'll believe that God is love. If they see hatred and division, they will reject the message of the gospel. And I would add, if the world sees half-hearted unity or unity that only reaches to the end of our own political party or opinions about COVID or all of the other things on the internet that don't really matter right now, that's not gonna cut it. Um, our genuine unity draws an unbelieving world toward the Savior. And we do have a platform, um, a pretty widespread platform to love each other well and to be that light that the Lord intended to us to be. Our unity as a body of believers, our unity as sisters in Christ played out in public or played out on the internet is going to get the attention of the world. Jesus says it right here. He says it matters. He says it's eternal. Because it matters so much to Jesus, I think we should fight hard for genuine unity among the family of God. Now this prayer of Jesus is an absolute treasure. It's a place for us to return to again and again if we're feeling unloved or unseen because we aren't unloved or unseen. Just hours before he went to the cross, Jesus stopped everything and he turned his eyes upward and he prayed for us. Jesus loves me and Jesus loves you. And I know that because of what I have seen and read here. Okay, we'll move into chapter 18 now. It's where Jesus is arrested. So uh, follow along with me in verses one through 11 of chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And he's speaking about his disciples. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you, had, whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now the Kidron was a small valley with a stream bed. Sometimes it had water flowing in it, sometimes it didn't. The Garden of Gethsemane was there. Jesus, John's account of what happens is not comprehensive in the garden, but if you put all four gospels together, you will get a more complete picture of what happens. Jesus, uh, John focuses on just a few incidents here. He and his disciples, Jesus and his disciples are in the garden. Judas brings with him into the garden about 60 or so Roman soldiers and a bunch of the top brass of the Jewish leadership. It's a lot of men. They come with torches, they come with weapons. They have come with the torches that would be like a flashlight so that you could see in the garden. They were probably anticipating that Jesus and his disciples might try to scatter, hide in dark corners of the garden, go over the garden walls. 
um, and they want to be able to see to catch them before they do that. They come with weapons because obviously they either expect to fight or want to have this great show of force there. I think it's so stark when it says Judas stands with them. He stands with the Roman soldiers and Jewish officers and betrays Jesus to them. And it is the most probably deepest act of treachery and betrayal that's ever been recorded. You know, torches and weapons turned out to not be necessary at all. I think all those soldiers showing up in the dark, trying to show up by surprise, um, were meant to quickly shift any power or any um, upper hand that Jesus and his disciples would have away from them. But verse four, I think, tells us everything we need to know about that. It says, Jesus knew all that would happen. And so he walks up to them. And that is because he knows his hour has come. As often as true with the Lord, things aren't the way they look on the surface of this situation. The 60 men, the weapons against just the few of uh, the few disciples looks like the power is shifted completely toward the Romans and the Jews. But Jesus handed himself over because he was fully man, but he was also fully God. And this was his plan and this was his time. So regardless of what it looked like to anyone there, Jesus was fully in control every moment, every day, just like he is now. You know, instead of running and hiding, he speaks first. And he says, who do you look for? And when they say Jesus and he responds with, I am he, these men, men fall to the ground. No explanation is given as to why they fall to the ground, but we know that God calls himself, I am. So Jesus identifying himself as God here. And I don't think the soldiers understood why, but I believe it was the sheer power of Jesus speaking his own name that supernaturally blows them to the ground. And every one of them who had walked into the garden thinking they were powerful, they were in control, they had the upper hand, find themselves in the dirt and not even knowing how they got there. And our God is a mighty God. In another display of authority, Jesus tells the officers and soldiers to leave his men out of this um, and to deal with him only. That's exactly what happens. Jesus protects his disciples from arrest. He is the loving and protective, protective shepherd here again. Just as when he prayed for them, he was praying then for their spiritual protection. Here he gives them physical protection. There's a lot of emphasis here on Jesus' purposeful march toward the cross. Many times throughout John, we've heard him say, my, it, this is not my hour, this is not my time, but this is his hour now and this is his time. He's explained that to the disciples already and they should really start having an understanding of that now. So when Peter pulls out that sword and cuts off the servant's ear, what he's doing is in direct rebellion to God's stated will and that's why Jesus rebukes him for it. You know, Peter had a flawed but very real love for Jesus. And I think in that moment, he simply could not, would not line himself up with Jesus' will, even though Jesus had stated it very plainly. He wanted a different way because this was hard. And I think I would have wanted a different way also. But if Peter had gotten his way, we, as he was 100% convinced he would, 
again, I, I'm not sure that we would be here. His plan would have left people separated from God from ever, would have denied the way of the cross and salvation. We are not always going to understand in our own lifetimes why God does some of the things he does, what his timing is, what his ways are. But if we're sure he loves us, we can trust him anyway without fully understanding it all. We can submit to the Lord's ways instead of our own, and we should. I can't help but be reminded of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I think I put this on every single one of my verse sheets, but I think it very much applies here. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. You know, after his arrest, Jesus is questioned by the authorities. We read about that beginning in verse 18, uh, I mean, chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for that one man should die for all. Now drop your eyes down to verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I have said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Remember how we said that Jesus' prayer was called the high priestly prayer because he acts as a mediator and an intercessor between um, the Father and the people? It was a role that was created by God for the good of God's people. And it should have been held by a righteous and holy man. This high priest could not have been less holy or righteous. Caiaphas Ill illegally questions Jesus. He allows him to be struck illegally as well. He was deeply corrupt. There was no indictment. There were no formal charges. The questioning and his subsequent trial happen at night when the law expressly stated that that was only to happen during the day. Allowing a guard to hit um, Jesus before there was any kind of conviction was illegal. It was unethical as well. Jesus has endured and understands personal pain from injustice and from a misuse and unbalance of authority. And if you have had that pain as well in your life, I want you to know you can take that to Jesus and trust him. Jesus does not react to the, any of this with outrage. He remains completely in control of himself and the situation. He very simply and truthfully explains his teaching and actions. Here's why that's important. If Jesus had been teaching and saying one thing to the crowds and in public, but then secretly trying to stir up some sort of rebellion, that would have been a crime. What he's saying here is that the message that he taught and spoke was the same, whether in uh, crowds or in private, whether in the synagogue or anywhere he was, and his message is absolute truth. 
Now interwoven with the wickedness of this scene is Peter denying that he even ever knew Jesus three times. Jesus knew he would do this. He predicted to Peter that he would do this. And we are going to leave Peter today at this point of pretty desperate failure, but his story isn't over yet. We'll come back to it at the end of our study of John. Later, Jesus will deal with Peter's failure head on. Peter will understand Jesus' love and forgiveness and grace and mercy in a way he doesn't yet. He will understand God's plan in a way he doesn't yet. And I'm glad that we don't leave Peter here because this is a pretty bad spot for him. From the moment that Jesus is arrested, the legal system, the religious system, and his own friends fail him. And yet it doesn't change a single thing. He will steadfastly submit to the cross. He will put his love for us on display at the highest imaginable cost. He will make it possible for you and for me to abide with him now and throughout eternity. Greater love has no one than this, than he who lays down his life for his friends. And so I hope we can delight in, find joy in that deep and wide love of Jesus minute by minute and day by day. So let's pray together. Lord, you are good and you are great and your love for us is deeper and wider and higher than we will ever know, but I am thanking you for it anyway. I am asking, Lord, that the truth of what you have done for us, your care for us, um, your willingness to go to the cross would Make a, make a difference in our everyday lives, that it would speak to our circumstances today and in the hours and days to come. I pray that we would be women who cling to that love um, and love others well because of it too. We just love you and thank you, Lord. Um, and I pray that you would deepen our understanding of, um, of your word that's been taught here today and our just love for all the scriptures as well. And I ask all of this in your holy and precious name. Amen.